from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Peter Adrians on September 14, 2015. When Peter encountered the Baha'i faith, it stimulated his spiritual awakening and search. As a result, he traveled across the country after college and found himself entangled in a cult. He tells his story about his involvement in the cult and how he was able to extricate himself from it. Some years after Peter became a Baha'i, he was offered the opportunity to work for the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. Most of his time there has been promoting environmental awareness, especially regarding climate change with non-governmental organizations. We talk about the Baha'i perspective on climate change in the interview. I started the interview by asking Peter where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Long Meadow, Massachusetts, not far from you, I think. Right. It's a wonderful little town in New England on the Connecticut River in the Pioneer Valley. We lived on a dead-end street. Um, at the end of the street was a woods that was a child's fantasy land. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure it was not much, but back then when I was small, it meant a lot. And we played in the woods and the fields around there. And that was back in the 50s. Mm. So it's been a while. And we had a, a strong, close-knit family. I had a few really good friends. I don't know. It was, it's great upbringing. What were your interests growing up? I had one obscure interest, and that was collecting bottle caps. Back then, milk bottles used to come with these tinfoil bottle caps, red, silver, and blue. And I loved collecting those. <laughs> it was one of the stranger habits. I've never met anybody else that did that. I also like to collect things, and I loved playing in the woods, making forts, mm-hmm. doing stuff like that when I was a, a young boy. I wasn't totally into sports, I have to say. Right. I never caught the baseball bug or anything. I used to play catch with my dad, but um, I wasn't that good at it. Mm. <laughs> I did develop a love for skiing, eventually became a co-captain of the ski team in my high school. I also learned how to play piano. When I was about eight years old, my parents gave me a piano for my birthday, and it blew me away. I was so excited because I'd been going for months to a neighbor's house, and they had this old beat-up piano in the basement. I would just go down there and bang on it, create rhythms with it more than anything else, and that fed my interest in piano, and, and they could see that. I've always loved piano, and after I retire, I'm going to go back and take more lessons to learn more about jazz piano. We love the outdoors. We used to go to the beach in the summer. My, my grandma had a beach house that we went to, and my dad took his vacation on Cape Cod for the family for three weeks every summer. We went back to the same place year in and year out. It's just glorious. What was religious life like growing up? Well, I went to Sunday school, 
my family belonged to the Congregational Church in town, First Church of Christ. I have to say I was not very enchanted with Sunday school. I never really uh, caught the religious bug growing up. I studied the Bible a little bit and sat through the classes, but it didn't really interest me that much. It sounded kind of boring. You know, I could tell there was something there. My parents, I learned some prayers that were kind of rote for me. They didn't really resonate with me. It wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I had kind of a spiritual awakening and discovered a whole side of me that pretty much had been dormant most of my life. What was the stimulus for the awakening? Well, I think it was a combination of things. You know, this was in the 70s, early 70s, and we were coming off the Vietnam War. It was the time of the drug culture. It was also, a, there was kind of a spiritual hunger in America back then, and um, transcendental meditation was another interest. I learned about that when I was at UMass. I was in, in grad school back in the, I don't know, say 1971. I'd never been exposed to anything like that, and I started to meditate, and and then I, I heard about the Baha'i faith from a colleague at UMass. And that started it. I was prepared for it. I started to develop kind of a hunger for spiritual awareness. And when I first heard of the faith, it was very strange to me, but that began a, about a year-long journey that ended up in my realizing I was a Baha'i. <laughs> I was in the MBA program at UMass. And one of my classmates was a mixed-race African-American guy he had a terrific sense of humor, and we were just kidding around in the hall uh, one day, and, and he said, and you know, Dizzy Gillespie is coming to give a concert here. I said, oh, that's interesting. He was a great jazz musician. He said, yeah, Dizzy's a Baha'i, and so are we. We're members of the Baha'i faith. I said, what's that? And he said, well, basically, we, we believe that Christ has returned. I said, what? I did like a double take. And I said, isn't that a little presumptuous? How come I haven't heard of it? My expectation was that Christ would come down from the clouds, the trumpets would be blowing, everyone would know about it. He said, well, he really came like a thief in the night. And the Bible also talked about that. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I, I didn't know what to think of it, really. But I went to the Dizzy Gillespie concert. During the intermission, the Baha'is gave him a, a bouquet of roses, and he mentioned a few things about the faith. And I, I detected a love there that was palpable between him and the, the Baha'i community. And really, just his whole spirit kind of spoke of that kind of love for humanity at, at large. And that was intriguing. Then that same friend of mine invited me to his home for what was called a fireside, which just means it's something Baha'is do to let people learn about the faith and have intimate discussions about spiritual matters. So I said, sure, I'll come to the, the fireside. And they were having dinner. And I thought, well, I'll bring them a bottle of wine. <laughs> and that's when I learned that Baha'is don't drink. And I thought, oh, these Baha'is, 
how did they have any fun? <laughs> I just thought it was strange. But, you know, we had a great time at the fireside. I learned more about the faith. And Fred, this, this friend of mine, gave me this book called Baha'u'llah and the New Era. It's about the Baha'i faith. It's a book that was written in the early part of the faith about the teachings. To be honest, I took the book with me, but I never really could get into it that much. But a little while later, I went to work in a restaurant to help pay my expenses in grad school. And um, a young lady came uh, to work there. And lo and behold, she was a Baha'i. Now, so I'd gone from not knowing anything about the faith to suddenly people are popping up in front of me who are Baha'is. You know how that goes. Right. Like when you learn anything and suddenly you see it everywhere. I was interested in this young woman more than the faith. <laughs> but I decided, you know, I want to learn more about the Baha'i faith and I'll ask her to get what her position is on it. And um, she said she had just become a Baha'i only a few weeks or a couple of months before that. She didn't know as much about it as she would like to be able to share with me, so she invited me to go back to her apartment and meet her roommate, who had been a long time behind. So I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And I went there, and um, her roommate was an African-American woman named Sandy Apar. And Sandy had the most radiant spirit. Her smile was incredible, and she had such warmth. And she sat down with me and really told me so much about the faith in a way that was almost irresistible. It was very intriguing, let's just put it that way. She invited me to come to this meeting that the Baha'is were having. They called it a road show. She extended the invitation in, in a way that you know, I knew if I saw her again, I would have to have gone to it because it was such a warm and wonderful invitation. But to be honest with you, I was still a little bit hesitant about religion. I was living with my brother at the time, who was also a student at UMass. I didn't even tell him where I was going because I didn't want to tell him I was going to something religious. I snuck out of the apartment and, and I went down to this meeting in, in Holyoke, Mass., and it was in kind of a humble place, but it was a, a public hall of some sort. When I went in there, there were people of all stripes. I mean, young, old, black, white, and in between, educated and not educated, rich, poor, fat, thin. <laughs> it was the most diverse group of people and the happiest group of people all at one time that I had ever experienced. And to me, it was almost like, it was like a dream come true. Because my parents would, they shared with me, you know, that all people should be respected. And, you know, they taught me values that hopefully would try and build in me no prejudice. But to be honest, my life had been kind of sheltered up to that point, And I hadn't had a lot of exposure to a great diversity of people. But I had that as kind of an ideal, and, and I saw that in this meeting. There was song and dance, and people were telling about the Baha'i faith in a dramatic way. It was beautiful. In fact, it was so beautiful, I, I actually was moved to tears because it just had this wonderful spirit. Well, 
that got me more interested, and then I, I started to read some of the Baha'i writings. And that was the beginning of my spiritual awakening. The hidden words of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i prayers were what I started to read. You know, there's a passage in the front of a Baha'i prayer book that says, I'm paraphrasing here, even though you're not aware of it, sooner or later these words will have an influence on your soul. I felt that. It was imperceptible at first, but after a while it was like, wow, this is amazing. So I became very interested in in a lot of the Baha'i principles, like the individual investigation of truth. Each of us is enjoined to investigate truth for ourselves. We should know through our own eyes, not through the eyes of others. And I took that one pretty seriously, and I I started to study the faith. I loved the fact that Baha'is believed in the harmony of science and religion, the equality of women and men. I also began to learn about this administrative order of the faith. Baha'u'llah came to unite the world, basically, and the administrative teachings of the faith set up a structure that is integral to the spiritual teachings of the faith. So it's all about us working together in groups at every level, from the local level up to the international. So anyway, all this was intriguing to me, but when I graduated with my MBA, I didn't get a job right away, and I decided I would take advantage of the summer ahead to travel across the country, and I hitchhiked about rides from friends and so forth, went all the way across the country, really with my eyes and ears open to find out what what do people believe in what moved them spiritually. And there were a lot of things going on at that time. Everything from meeting the Hare Krishnas in their orange robes. There was a boy guru, a guru Maharaji. There were Christian scientists. I ran into so many people. When I got out to California, I was in uh, Sproul Plaza in Berkeley, and that's kind of the epicenter of the spiritual quest. At least it wasn't at that time, maybe still today. I met a group of people there that had an information table set up, and they were talking about a lot of things that sounded like Baha'i to me, but really they weren't Baha'is, but they were talking about some of those same principles, the harmony of science and religion, the equality of women and men, world peace, upheld by a world government, spiritual solution to the economic problem, and so forth. They were having a festival on their land up in Mendocino County, and they invited me to go up there, along with a lot of other people, and find out more about what it was about. So, thinking about my individual investigation of truth, I decided I'll go. I went up there, and it was a... um, a very interesting time. It was men and women, quite a diversity of people, no drugs, no alcohol, no sexual promiscuity, men and women in separate quarters, a lot of games and fun things, but also a whole series of workshops that they put us through. And the essence of those workshops was 
that all religions worship the same God. There have been many messengers of God. Now is the time for the reappearance of the messenger. You got this sense that this was a really important time and we should be searching for whoever that is. You know, this was very similar to Baha'i in many respects, but it wasn't Baha'i. So they invited me to to come and stay in their center in uh, Oakland. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that as part of my individual investigation of the truth. I lived there for approximately two months. And over that period, we studied a lot the teachings of their leader. The lifestyle was extremely regimented and controlled. It was a communal life. There must have been somewhere between 30 and 50 people living in this small house in Oakland. And we had one closet for the men, one for the women. We had put all our clothes in there and whoever wanted to could take whatever was in there and wear it. We slept in sleeping bags on the floor lined up like hot dogs. The days were long. We got up early, said dawn prayers, cleaned the house, went out to jobs. Everybody had a job of some kind. Then we would go in the evening and talk with people about our movement. Wednesday nights, we'd go into San Francisco to the Bay Area Center and hear a talk. On the weekend, we'd go back up to the land and do that, that series of workshops over again. And then back the same the next week and the week after that. We formed small study groups, groups of three that would study and work together, and they were supposed to be reinforcing each other. It never felt quite right to me, but I kept wanting to know what was making this place tick. The people there were really good people, and they just wanted to make the world a better place. But after a while, I thought, this is not really for me, and I decided I would leave. Well, I I talked to somebody about it, and they said, geez, you haven't given enough time. Well, maybe I hadn't. So I decided, all right, I'll stay a little bit longer. But then later on, I I decided, this is not really working out. (laughs) I definitely want to go. But then they said, well, your ego's getting in the way. And I couldn't argue with them. It might have been getting in the way. I had had plans to go ski bombing in Colorado that winter. But I was kind of getting diverted on this path. The next time they said, well, this is actually a matter of your spiritual life or death. And by that time, I was in so deep that I didn't really know whether that might be true or not. I was just really confused. And then... I heard from the young woman who I had met in that restaurant when I was at UMass, who introduced me to the faith. She was coming out to see me from Wisconsin, where she had been living. She had kind of strayed from the faith, was looking for the last stable person she knew. And that was me, except I was not that same person by the time she got out there. After she'd come and, and we'd been there for like four days, I finally got a chance to connect with her a little bit. We were in the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco setting up a banquet for the founder of this movement who was coming to speak. 
And I pulled her into the stairwell with me, and we sat down on the stairs, and I said, her name was Lori, I said, Lori, what's going on here? What What's your assessment? She looked at me, she said, Pete, you're like a flower that's lost all its petals. And when she said that, the last petal fell with a thud. I mean, I, I, that's exactly the way I felt. I was just stripped of my personality, and I was on a blind, passionate search for truth, but I, I was wandering in the desert, if you will. And I was really desperate. I wanted to know truth so badly. I was ready to do almost anything. Right then, we decided, okay, it's time to pull out of this thing, and I'm not going to talk to anybody about it this time. We're just going to leave. And I'll never forget this this time. I mean, we we left with our bags, and we're walking down the sidewalk talking about something, and suddenly I was laughing about something, and I realized that the laughter was coming from somewhere deep in my gut and not up in my head, and it felt so good that I, I took that as a confirmation that, that jumping out of this place was the right thing to do. But after an experience like that, you know, here I was, I had an MBA degree, I pretty much spent all my savings on this trip and ended up in California and on this crazy spiritual search. And I felt like I didn't know which end was up. You know, I was just blown away by this experience. I didn't know I could trust my own sense of judgment. It was pretty devastating, emotionally wrenching. This uh, friend of mine, Lori, she decided she was going to stay in Berkeley for a while, and she got a job working in a restaurant, and I decided I'm going back to the East Coast, and I just want to regroup. But before I did, right after we got out of that place, I gave a call to a Baha'i that I had met there when I was at the table in Sproul Plaza. and he would talk with me uh, over the time I was there on three or four occasions, and it was um, always wonderful. He never criticized what I was involved in, but he always had some insights and, and wisdom to share about something that was on my mind that I was trying to sort through. He became uh, kind of a friend over that period, and I called him and said, could we just come and stay at your place for a few days until we get our bearings? He said, yes. We could do that. And I went there and he had all his five books there. I felt like a, a flood-dazed animal that crawled up on a, a log and uh, was floating there. I'm just exhausted, finally getting to a place of safety. Reading some of the Baha'i writings at that moment gave me tremendous feeling of peace and assurance. I still wasn't a Baha'i but I knew that things would be all right. To make a, a long story even longer, I came back to the East Coast. I got a job at the University of Connecticut. Um, it was kind of a low-key job that I was comfortable in, and um, I took some time to read some books and things, kind of just relax. After a while, my spiritual search was not over. I, I, I felt like I really needed to know 
the truth, but I didn't know how I was going to find out what was true for me. And I found a prayer in the Baha'i prayer book that is to be read at midnight. And it says in a little paragraph before the prayer that whoever reads this prayer at midnight will have his or her spiritual eye opened. Again, I'm paraphrasing that. I thought, that's what I want. I'll say that prayer at midnight every night until something happens. So I did. And I did that for about two weeks. And then I thought, I'm going to look up the Baha'is. And I called a number that I had for the faith in Vernon, Connecticut. They were having a public meeting that weekend. And uh, the speaker was Nancy Jordan. Nancy was the wife of Dan Jordan, who had been a professor at UMass and was a member of the National Spiritual Assembly, the Baha'i Governing Council, and a wonderful woman. She gave a talk there that was just really nice, and I, I it just resonated so much with where I was. And then I met somebody else there, a woman named Connie Williams, who I got into a deep discussion with. We were talking until they had to close the place down, and we said good, goodbye and good night. And I went back to my, my house, and I just thought, oh, this is an amazing connection here. And I got a call the next morning from Connie, and she said, you know, I, I was continuing that conversation in my mind all the way home, and I had a flat tire. I had to get it fixed, and, you know, it was not an easy trip back, but I still couldn't get the conversation out of my mind. And I said, well, you know, I, I feel the same way. I'd really love to continue talking with you. And she said, well, I'm here. She lived down in Brantford. It was about an hour or hour and a half from where I was living. And so I made arrangements to go down. We we met there. We went to dinner together, had a very nice evening talking. And then we went back to her place and down on the rocks by the water. And it was a very thick, foggy night, very still. The water was like glass. We sat down on the rocks continued our conversation. And after a while, I realized I'm being spoon-fed the answer to every question that's deep inside of me that I have had. I knew at that moment that I could not go any further without saying, I'm a Baha'i. I know I'm a Baha'i. I believe this. I believe in Baha'u'llah. And I would like to follow his teachings to the best of my ability. So we went back up to her home, and we sat on the floor of the living room. The windows were all wide open. The air had been so still. The curtains were just hanging straight down. And we said a couple of prayers sitting there, and suddenly the wind blew. The curtains were just fluttering out from the breeze that was coming through. And we went outside and looked up. The sky was just brilliant with stars. It was The fog had completely dissipated. And it was... It's like a physical manifestation of what was going on inside of me at that very time. So that's my story. It, it was kind of a dramatic entrance into the faith for me. I felt a little bit apprehensive at first because of everything that had happened before that, but I knew that I was on the right track.
That was 1973. So now, fast forward, I've been a Baha'i for over 40 years. And I'm continuing to learn things every single day and to really marvel at how the faith has grown more deeply in myself, but also across the world. And I've seen such an evolution over the 40 years that I've been Baha'i and continuous growth and reaching out to the larger community. And so there's a lot more to this story, what happened since then, since becoming a Baha'i, but basically what got me into the faith. That's an amazing story, Pete. Your parents knew you were with this religious organization in California, and were they expressing any concern about your situation out there? Oh, yeah. They were totally nervous about it. In fact, they were, they were almost ready to come out and rescue me. That was going on across the country. There were people that were being brainwashed by different organizations, and parents would hire people even to come and get their children out of those situations. My parents were almost on the brink of doing something like that because when I talked to them on the phone, they said I sounded like a robot. And I sounded like an automaton. I didn't realize how bad I was. And they never let on when they were talking to me that they felt that way, but they confided in me afterwards that they, they were very nervous about it. So luckily, Lori came out before that happened, and you know, I found my own way out of there with her help. So, you know, when I became a Baha'i, they were, my parents were, apprehensive. I was apprehensive. Boy, they were really apprehensive because they didn't know really much at all about the faith. And I thought, oh, here he goes again. I think they had their fingers crossed. But they could see changes in me after becoming a Baha'i, and they knew that, that things were okay. Increasingly, as the years went on, they they were very supportive of my being a Baha'i. Even though they didn't embrace the faith themselves, and no one else in my family has done so, they've all been very supportive and really admiring what the faith is about and the influence that it's had on me and my family and so forth as I've gone on in life. My mom and dad were on a trip some years after I became a Baha'i, and my mom wanted to make me something. She did a lot of needlepoint, very nice needlepoint. She made me a needlepointed greatest name, which is a Baha'i symbol. This just means it's an Arabic symbol that means God is most glorious. Baha'is call that the greatest name, and um, they display that in their homes, and she made me a little one to put in my home. I was just showing that the other day to friends of mine that are in a study circle with me. Yeah, so they became quite supportive and interested, although they never became Baha'is themselves. I'm speaking with Peter Adrians, a Baha'i who works for the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs, where he works with non-governmental organizations to bring awareness about environmental issues, especially climate change. We'll take a little intermission to be back with Peter in a moment. When we return, he'll tell us his work with the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs in the area of climate change. You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. 
back to a Baha'i Perspective. I'm playing an interview with Peter Adrians, who works for the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs and has worked closely with the U.N. in the area of climate change. 
I resume the interview at the point when Peter describes his joining the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs. You've worked for the Baha'is of the United States for many years, and I was just wondering how that transition from working at UConn to having the opportunity to work for the Baha'is of the United States, and what did they initially ask you to do, and how did that evolve over the years? Of course, I had a few jobs in between working for UConn and working for the Baha'is. My last efforts were I was in business for myself for about seven years in direct mail advertising. I liked that business because I liked helping people to increase their sales and so forth. When I was successful at it, it was a lot of fun, and it depended on me you know, generating business, which I, I really like. I like the challenge of that. But I always felt like, you know, there must be something I could do on a grander scale with greater social impact. This was in the 80s, which was known at a time when people were saying greed is good. I mean, it was a time when there was a lot of growth in our material consumption as a country. Anyway, I felt there must be more. One day, my wife walked into my office with a little classified ad in the American Baha'i, which is the national newsletter of the Baha'is. It was for NGO liaison. My first question was, or reaction was, well, what's an NGO? I'd never heard of that. It means non-governmental organization. And so they were looking for someone to be a liaison with non-governmental organizations. And I, I didn't even know what that was, but I thought I'd check it out. And I ended up looking in the Encyclopedia of Associations, which is this huge volume that really describes every kind of and stripe of organization that exists in America. I began to envision all these possibilities for organizations that we could work with on different issues. And among those issues was the environment. The Baha'i international community had just opened an office of the environment in 1989. That was in New York. The Baha'i international community is the worldwide office of the Baha'is working at the United Nations. They've had a, a relationship with the UN since its inception, really, since the 40s. They opened up a new office within the Baha'i international community called the Office of Environment. And I went down there to interview their new director just to find out what he was thinking about and get ideas for this job that I was potentially interested in. And I had a wonderful conversation with him and came back all excited about it. Went to Washington where the Baha'i office was for the U.S. Baha'i External Affairs Office, it was called then. I interviewed and I, I got the job. And I think mostly it was because I really liked connecting with organizations and I'd had some experience with that in the American Indian community in Connecticut, connecting Baha'is with, with that community, a few other things. So my first job with the Baha'is was as NGO liaison and I, it was wide open. That was 1990 and that year preparations were underway for the 1992 Earth Summit that took place in Rio de Janeiro. And my first day on the job, literally, <laughs> I went to a gathering of 120 organizations that were preparing to organize around this UN conference because it was the first UN conference to invite 
non-governmental organizations to come in very broadly and help find the solutions that would bring us into a more sustainable world. So it was very exciting. The term sustainable development was new back then. People were trying to figure out what it meant. One of the major products of the Earth Summit was to be something called an Earth Charter, which would be a set of principles for living sustainably on the planet. Right away, I knew that the Baha'is would have an interest in that. I checked in with the Baha'i Office of Environment, and they were very interested. And I became, in effect, well, very involved with that project. I co-chaired a working group of organizations that tried to um, flesh out ideas for the Earth Charter here in the U.S., and that fed into the international discourse on the Charter. It turned out that in, in 1992, when the summit was held, the governments kind of abandoned the idea of an Earth Charter because they, they just could not come to agreement on it. And the Earth Summit was a, a monumental uh, meeting with many decisions that were, were taken there, and a number of very significant documents came out of it, but not the Earth Charter. Nonetheless, so much work had been done on the Charter by that point that a couple of years later, the Dutch government and Green Cross International teamed up and sponsored a renewed dialogue on the Earth Charter, a worldwide consultation, if you will. So we stayed involved in that and over the years worked on successive drafts of this would-be charter. And in the year 2000, the charter was actually officially uh, released at The Hague in the Netherlands. And I went there representing the Baha'i international community, spoke about the charter uh, there as a terrific educational tool for sustainable living. Anyway, there's a lot more to that story. Suffice it to say, the ethics and principles around living sustainably have been part of an ongoing discourse that continues today. Little did I know back in 1992 that the work that I did on sustainable development would carry me for two decades, or more than two decades. I eventually became the representative for sustainable development for the Baha'is of the United States. And that uh, more accurately describes my, my position I've worked on sustainability issues ever ever since then, and I'm, I'm now getting ready to retire at the end of this year. My plan is to step down, and I'm finding uh, looking for a replacement right now. Peter, if someone would ask you, what's the Baha'i perspective in regards to the environment and maybe sustainable development, how would you put it? Well, I would say that Baha'is believe that we are put here to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. And that a central principle of, of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of, of humankind. And that principle has all kinds of implications for living sustainably on the planet. And if we're going to be carrying forward an ever-advancing civilization, well, it's got to be sustainable. By that, I mean, you know, we have to be living as if tomorrow mattered. We have to understand that our levels of consumption are having a direct impact on the environment. 
and we depend on the environment for life and everything comes from the earth, this planet that we're living on. We've got to live sustainably. Of course, many dimensions to it. There are economic, social, and environmental dimensions, and I would say ethical dimensions. It's all part of a big mix that humanity is, has been struggling to figure out for the last couple of decades. And I think we're so much closer to that now than we, we've ever been. But there's so many contradictions between what we know and what we do. The Baha'is are, are very interested in seeing governments and non-governmental organizations and people at all levels learn about sustainable development and apply principles that will help us to live sustainably. If you look at the Baha'i principles that I've discussed before, like the equality of women and men and the harmony of science and religion, and all of these have bearing on how we can be sustainable. Now, in terms of our relationship with the environment, Baha'u'llah said that nature is a reflection of the divine. And through nature, we can learn of all of God's attributes. And it's almost like there are two books, the book of creation and the book of revelation. These are two ways of knowing that they're like science and religion. You know, our relationship with the environment is one of deep respect, and we should cherish the environment that we live in, not worship it, and understand that the environment is really just the space in which we, we all live and operate, and we need to protect it and take care of it so that others may also live and prosper. Um, there's tremendous inequities in the world. It's another Baha'i principle is the elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty. The wealth-poverty gap is bigger than it's ever been, and we need very much to narrow that gap if we're going to be sustainable as a society. So there are many aspects to it, but you know, it's important that we all learn about it. I, you know, There was a whole decade of education for sustainable development that the Baha'is were quite involved in. We developed a lot of programs that uh, were taken at the Baha'i schools, uh, many. We also worked with a whole partnership of more than 300 organizations to advance education for sustainable development throughout the decade. And we've developed online courses through the Wilmette Institute and the International Environment Forum. It's a Baha'i-inspired organization. They, they offer online courses on sustainable development and the prosperity of humankind, also on climate change. So there are many, many resources out there. The U.S. Baha'i Public Affairs website has, has many of them that you can go to and see. We've made a number of videos. We've given a number of talks. There are articles that have been written and a number of Baha'i statements of the Baha'i international community on themes of sustainability. What comes to mind, Peter, is, you know, we struggle as independent sovereign nations in trying to solve the problem of the environment. And one of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity and that the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. 
And I think the main message of the Baha'i faith is that we really need to be a federated set of nations for a world government versus a, a bunch of independent nations and in that paradigm trying to solve these global issues. So I'm thinking that until the world realizes that some of these cross-cutting issues that don't have national boundaries realizes that it cannot be solved unless we're of one world sovereign body, that we'll continue to struggle to try to resolve these issues in a very ineffectual way. And I just wanted your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, um, Bahá'u'lláh said, the well-being of mankind, its peace and security are unattainable unless and until its unity is firmly established. And he called for a world-federated state, a world government upheld by laws. There'd be a world executive and world legislature and a judiciary. If you look at the United States, it's a model of federal government that could offer some examples, or the European Union is another one. None of these unions are perfect, but it gives an idea of how diverse states can work together by having laws that transcend the borders of, of all states. Definitely, that's where we're headed, even though at this time in history, it's not likely to happen soon. But everything that's happening in the world is bringing us closer and closer to the realization that the old system is not functioning right. It's not going to get us there. And we need some profound and, and dramatic change. Baha'is see two forces at play in the world. There's both integration and disintegration going on at the same time. Both of these forces are propelling us towards our collective maturity, our maturity as a human race. The tumult that we're experiencing, so much conflict now and so many environmental problems and so forth, is really bringing us together in a strange and sort of bizarre way. I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to be brought together by catastrophe, but at the same time, there are tremendous integrated forces that are also bringing us together. The Internet is connecting us in ways that we've never been connected before. We've got, you know, an awareness of things going on around us instantaneously at very far distances, and all the tools are coming together to help us recognize our oneness. Even climate change, I've heard other colleagues in the faith community say that maybe climate change could be the great unifier because we're all impacted by climate change, and we all have a role to play in solving the problem of climate change. It's going to take all of us working together on a level that's unprecedented. But I think Baha'is see that we really need spiritual as well as scientific answers, that it's not just a technical challenge, climate change, it's a moral and ethical challenge. It's a matter of equity and fairness and justice. You know, it's very exciting to see things like the encyclical of uh, Pope Francis that 
was just released this year that's really calling attention to a lot of these issues as well. And across the faith spectrum, there's a lot of excitement about the sort of rising awareness that faiths across the board have a tremendous role and responsibility to play in bringing us toward a more sustainable world. The Parliament of the World's Religions is coming up in October in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it's a tremendous and huge gathering. I think there'll be upwards of 10,000 people there. One of the major themes is climate change. So we shall see. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Peter Adrians, a Baha'i who works for the U.S. Baha'i Office of Public Affairs, where he works with non-governmental organizations to bring awareness about environmental issues, especially about climate change. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.